I'm going to read out of John 1. Um, it's on page 860, if you want to follow along in your Bible. Would you mind if we just stood for the reading of the gospel from verses 19 to 34? Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you, don't, you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. But this all happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Jacob, when he was about five years old, had a visit from his Uncle Tom, and uh, Uncle Tom made a huge imp impression upon little Jacob when he was five, and uh, every single night after Uncle Tom's visit, Jacob would pray, bedtime prayers, and he would say, thank you, God, for Uncle Tom, every single night. God, thank you for Uncle Tom. God, thank you for Uncle Tom. He did this for many, many, many nights in a row. And then one night he was praying and he said, God, thank you for Uncle Tom. Mom, who's Uncle Tom? <laughs> True story. <laughs> I think we have my nephew Jacob's exact same problem at Christmas. Because we have heard all these stories before. We have heard them so many times, we've kind of forgotten the point. So the angels, the angels, the angels. Who again are the angels? Mary and Joseph, Mary and Joseph, Mary and Joseph. Who again are Mary and Joseph? We uh, run the risk every year at this time of turning the stories of the Bible at Christmas into empty tradition. Just telling them again. I'm wondering, have you ever had this experience where you know a place, like say your house, very well, you go there every day, you know what your house looks like, but then one day you return a plate to your neighbors across the street, and you drop the plate off, and then you turn back towards your house, and you look at your house, and you go, what? 
Like, I've just never seen it from this angle before. I've, I, like, I completely did not realize there is that much junk in my driveway or whatever it may be. Sometimes just seeing something from a different angle can be totally jarring. It can make all of the difference. And hearing the stories, the Christmas stories each year is part of our routine, but if we're to be shaped by them, maybe we have to come at them from across the street. Come at them from a different angle and allow ourselves to wonder afresh what was happening here. So this series that we're starting today is called Home for Christmas, and we are coming home to Christmas in the sense of returning to the story that is our home every Christmas. Every season, at Chris, every Christmas season, we return again to this story. So it's almost like for the next couple weeks, we're going to open the door of our home here together in worship, and we're going to welcome these different characters into our home, just like we do every Christmas with family and friends. And each character, just like your family and friends, uh, is going to kind of come in, and we're going to have the chance to interact with each character of the story. Each character in the story is a potential place of learning and insight, a possible role model for us um, in different ways. So John the Baptist in the story is like, a trustworthy but a bit odd, a bit aloof uncle. And uh, we're going to look at him. Joseph is kind of like the grandfather maybe in the story who wants to do the right thing, is determined to do the right thing, but sometimes just needs that reminder that his initial reaction may not be the right one. And then you have Mary, the mother of Jesus, who kind of maybe like a trusted grandmother in your life is so faithful and full of humility and always seeing the joy in every situation. Then you have the shepherds. The shepherds are kind of like the black sheep of the family, definitely don't deserve the grace that just keeps coming their way. We have Herod and the Magi, who are kind of like our very well-to-do, well-off cousins, but they're starkly different in how they handle their positions of high status. So each week we're going to have this opportunity to, to like sit with a family member in the story. It's going to be like each week we, you know, go cook with grandma for a little while, ask her some questions while we're cooking together. We're going to sit down with a crazy uncle and be like, what is up with the camel's hair and the eating of locusts? So uh, today we're looking at John the Baptist, and uh, he is kind of, like we've said, the weird uncle a little bit. Like, who is this guy? Eating crazy food, wearing crazy clothes. In his life, throughout the scriptures, we see over and over and over again, his life is empty of self-promotion, and he is all about Christ promotion promoting Christ over and over again. Do you know anybody like that? Do you know anybody who just consistently points towards Jesus with the whole of their life? The thing is, often these people go a bit unnoticed 
because we live in a world that so flaunts, uh, values flaunting ourselves, that when you meet someone who is truly not self-promoting, but very much pointing towards Jesus with their lives, with their words, with their everything, sometimes they go a bit unnoticed or are dismissed as odd, just strange. But once you do notice someone like this, often, I don't know about you, but I know I am drawn to their selflessness because it goes against the grain, totally against the grain of the dominant value and traits of our culture. So in 2007, psychologist and researcher Jean Twenge released the first of what would be a series of books lamenting the self-centeredness of our world. And uh, in 2010, she released a book called The Narcissism Epidemic. Living, uh, the subtitle was Living in the Age of Entitlement. And in her book, she talks about things like from 2000 to 2010, there was a 600% increase in plastic surgery. There was a huge increase in our willingness to take on debt. We cannot afford to impress others with the things we have. She um, cites this kind of strange new phenomenon in our world where uh, you can hire fake paparazzi to follow you around so people think that you're famous. So she just gives all these examples of how we have grown as a culture in narcissism. But she also points out, uh, you know, narcissism is like a buzzword. I feel like once a month I see some article flying around on social media about narcissism. So it's like a buzzword today. But truth be told, it isn't new. It keeps getting repackaged but it certainly isn't new. And in contrast, right here, coming home to Christmas, we have a character who spent his entire existence pointing away from himself to another. If we want role models to kind of combat narcissism in ourselves and in the world, it would make sense that they would be people who we would often dismiss entirely right in front of us. Or maybe dismissing them as odd or different. Um, certainly John the Baptist would have run that risk. To live in a way that points to Jesus, it is infectious, but in a subtle way. Because you're not the center of attention. And it turns out that John the Baptist um, gets some pretty high praise from Jesus himself. And I was thinking about how, you know, Time Magazine has this person of the year tradition, started back in 1927, where every year the most influential person is sort of wins the award, and most recently our president won it. Um, actually, every president since they started this has won it at some point in their life. Gandhi has won it. Mark Zuckerberg has won it. Pope Francis has won it. Um, Pope John Paul has won it. In 1999, uh, Time did an issue where they did most influential person of the century. Do you know who won it? Albert Einstein. But I was thinking, uh, be interesting to ask yourself the question, who would you 
name most influential person of the year for you this past year? Who would win that in your life? Or not just this past year, but maybe your life thus far. Maybe a grandparent or a friend, most influential person. And then to kind of spin it, we could ask ourselves, who would that person name most influential? So if you said grandpa was most influential in my life, who would grandpa have said was most influential in his life? Or who would Albert Einstein have named person of the year? What about Jesus? Who would Jesus have named person of the year? Would he even have done such a thing? It's kind of interesting because in a way, Jesus did just that. In Matthew eleven eleven, we read that Jesus said, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So what was it that made John the Baptist so overwhelmingly great according to Jesus himself? For John the Baptist, his whole life was empty of self-promotion. It was all about Christ promotion. It was like his entire existence was that he was this giant finger pointing to Jesus. And according to Jesus, there was no greater way for a life to be lived. Now think about it like this. Jesus knows us because he made us. And he knows that actually we are most satisfied when he is most glorified. He knows this about us because he made us. So that's why he said things like, you want to find your life, you got to lose your life. Because if you want the life that is truly life, you got to take off the blinders of this world that would say it is in what you do and who you know and what you have. Because life, the life that's truly life, is in an upside-down kingdom that is found not in self-promotion, but in Christ promotion, that when we lose our lives in him, we actually find our lives. So in a way, self-denial is like in your self-interest. Jesus knows you because he made you, and he knows that you will actually be most satisfied when he's most glorified. You will actually find your life when you lose your life. John the Baptist gets Jesus' vote for person of the year. So what can, we, what can we learn from the weird uncle? Everything he did is pointing at Jesus. And it's funny because as prominent as John the Baptist is in the Gospels, he also kind of remains elusive. So the Pharisees, in the passage that Charlie just read for us, they're asking him, you know, who are you? Who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you one of the prophets? Who are you? Who are you? And in a sense, we come to the story asking that too. I mean, you can say of Peter in the Gospels, that guy was harsh, you know? 
He was kind of brash. Thomas, you could say he doubted. But what can we say about John the Baptist? He wore strange clothes. He ate weird food. He's kind of an oddball. And it's interesting because what he ate and what he wore was not that unusual for the poorest of the poor living in the land at that time. The strange thing about it is it's unusual because he is a child born into somewhat of a prominent place in Jerusalem. And so it's kind of like, you could say, this is like the trust fund kid who's wearing clothes from Goodwill and eating ramen. It's kind of John the Baptist. And then beyond that, we don't know that much about the content of his ministry. We know these different pieces. Basically, it's summarized in this. He is preparing the way for one greater than him to follow. So Luke records the story of, you know, the miraculous nature of his parents who become pregnant in their older age. The angel visits them, and his father disbelieves. But about John himself... We're told he'll be great because he will prepare the way for the Lord. That's his life. So Mary visits Elizabeth during their pregnancies, both of them pregnant, and we find John in the womb already kicking when Mary walks in pregnant with Jesus. Then in his young years, he goes off into the wilderness until the appointed time, it's almost like his whole entire purpose is preparing for that proper time to point to Jesus. And then when you sort of see him emerge, it's like his 15 minutes of fame is all pointing to Christ, pointing to Christ. He one time is baptizing people, and the crowd is gathered, and Jesus walks by and he stops. He stops what he is doing, and he says this, points to Jesus, look, the Lamb of God. And then he baptizes Jesus. But he acknowledges the craziness, the absurdity of that moment, like him baptizing Jesus when he isn't even worthy to untie his sandals. So it's kind of like if a CEO were to go and, like, ask the security guard in the lobby for a recommendation letter. Here is John and Jesus at this baptism. And when his job is all done, he doesn't like hang on like an NFL player who just can't acknowledge that the game is over, the game has passed him by. In John 3, his followers are they're struggling with the fact that now Jesus is baptizing people and John is no longer baptizing people. And John himself says this, he must become greater. I must become less. So he willingly fades from the scene. And whenever he resurfaces, his whole message is to pay attention to Jesus. He ends up in prison he ends up beheaded. It's almost like even in his death is like a foreshadowing of what would happen to Christ. So John the Baptist. What can we learn from this crazy uncle? 
Karl Barth is arguably, was arguably the most influential theologian of the last century, and he is known to have written, he, he wrote more than 9,000 pages, uh, but he was known to have written his work sitting under a certain piece of artwork. The artwork uh, by Matthias Grunewald is called the Isenheim Altarpiece. And Grunewald, the artist, was a 16th century German Renaissance era painter. But his works really resembled a late medieval period more than his own. But this painting was above where Karl Barth would sit and write and do his work. And it's a picture of the crucifixion. Um, it is his largest work. It's considered his best work. It was painted during the time of the plague. And it was painted for a monastery that was known for their hospital work. So in the painting, Jesus is covered in plague-like sores. His feet and his hands are twisted. His skin has a greenish hue to it. And all of this is meant to communicate the identification with the patients. The rest of the painting is filled with all sorts of symbolism. Uh, there's a single drop of rain or a teardrop from heaven falling in the middle of the picture. Mary Magdalene and the Apostle John are off to the side. Mary, mourning Mary, is on her knees beneath the cross. And on the other side, uh, you're right, you see the lamb looking up at Jesus, holding a cross, bleeding into a communion cup. And then right next to that little lamb is John the Baptist. He's holding the scriptures open, and it's open to the prophets, um, his fingers stretched out, pointing at Jesus. And behind him, in Latin, are the words from John 3, 3, he must become greater, I must become less. So throughout his work, Karl Barth would often refer to this painting, and specifically he would refer to John the Baptist. And more specifically, he would often refer to John the Baptist's pointing finger. In fact, one time he said, can anyone point away from himself more impressively and completely? Barth would, in describing the church's role in faith sharing, he said that's the role of the church in faith sharing, to be a pointing finger. He said of all of his work, I just want all of my work, these 9,000 pages, theological writing, I just want all my work, he said, to be like John the Baptist's pointing finger. So what does that look like for you to be a pointing finger towards Christ? What does that look like as you show up at your dinner table this Christmas 
and some hot topics start arising, what does it look like for you to live and speak and move and breathe as one who's like a giant finger pointing towards Christ? Not towards yourself, not towards your opinions, not towards your work, but towards God. What does that look like? You know, back in the 90s, there was that whole kind of um, rage, WWJD, people would wear bracelets, and what would Jesus do? And it came from a late 1800s book, In His Steps, where all the characters faced with different things in their lives would ask that question, what would Jesus do? But I just wonder if it might be meaningful for us this Advent to ask ourselves a slightly different question. What would John the Baptist do? In each situation that we face, how could I point to Christ in this situation? How could I point to Christ in this conversation? How could I point to Christ in this relationship? We certainly wouldn't go wrong asking that question a bit this Advent. Let's pray together as we close and have a little time of reflection around what this might mean for you. God, we thank you for the life of John the Baptist. All his life lived as a finger pointing to you. Help us to be like him this Advent season. God, I think of the way that he went off into the wilderness and how some of us need to find ways to be wholly detached, at least in our hearts, from the emphasis on earthly goods and stuff and consumerism this season. Would you help us to find ways to be detached from that and attached to you? And God, would you give us the firmness and just the constancy that John had to withstand people like Herod and the powers of his day, even when that led him to his death? May we find ways to be firm and steadfast in you, not to any other power that may be. May our lives point to you in all that we do and say. And if it would be meaningful to you now, I just invite you to take a minute to pray, to reflect, and to ask yourself the question, how could I point to Christ in the situations I'm facing today.
God, as we come to the table of communion now, we come to be nourished by you, to be fed by you. So we pray that you would fill us. God, we confess that we so often think we know what's best for our lives. But you made us and you know us. And you tell us that we are actually most satisfied when you're most glorified. So may our lives point to you in all that we do and in all that we say today and each day of this Advent season. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.